Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 13th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I've been rather ill for most of the week, as it seems that I have contracted some sort of food poisoning from a restaurant as we travel back to Panama City from New Orleans on Monday. The nigger lovers in the Antifa couldn't kill me as quickly as some kitchen with Mexican help might be able to do. At least that's my story. We ate out twice that day, having breakfast at a Cracker Barrel in Sleedell, and then dinner at a very popular Irish, Irish restaurant in Destin, Florida, where we have often eaten in the past. I began to exhibit the symptoms late Tuesday, spent the day on my back for most of Wednesday, Thursday, and until early afternoon on Friday. I still got a lot done, I think, considering the circumstances. A few weeks ago, I began developing a new site for the Dixie Project at Christiania, a, a project that's long sat dormant for specific reasons that are beyond our control. And I could not have started the project at a better time. So on Tuesday, I was able to publish all of the video and pictures that we took in New Orleans on that new site. I will publish the links when I publish this podcast. I appeared on Battle Nola Radio on Wednesday evening, sitting doubled over in my chair for most of the program. We posted that at Christagenia yesterday afternoon. I just couldn't post it sooner. I also began writing this article, and if it is not the most eloquent or verbose of my articles, I will try to improve it further before it appears in the next issue of our Saxon Messenger. This program this presentation is subtitled, it, I'm sorry, is titled The Brattle of New Orleans. And that is not a typographical error. The first week of May was already somewhat more hectic for us than usual. Our regular internet service was taken out by a storm last Thursday morning, and two attempts to pre-record a scheduled program with our friend Don Fox had failed miserably. The backup plan, a cell phone hotspot that is almost always reliable, wasn't even lukewarm in the continuing bad weather. But when we heard what was about to happen in New Orleans the coming weekend, we just had to go. And Don kindly agreed to do our Saturday program live. We would have, we would have to do our part from a motel room in Slidell, Louisiana, after a long drive Saturday afternoon. At least the drive from northwest Florida to New Orleans is indeed quite scenic. Back in April, we posted a short paragraph and a video of talk radio host Nathan Lawrenson and a small group of local residents protesting the removal of the Liberty Place Monument, which is a memorial commemorating the actions of patriots, who in 1874 had rebelled against an oppressive and corrupt Reconstruction government. It was the only the first of four monuments that the city of New Orleans is planning to remove. The 
or I should say was planning to remove because two of them are now gone. The Confederate era monuments in New Orleans are being taken down in the middle of the night under heavy police guard by contractors who wear masks and conceal the names of their companies and the protesters were out there with them. Seeing the video of Nathan on the internet at the Daily Resistance website, we sent him a short note commending his good work. We didn't know at the time that we that we would be chatting with him at Lee Circle in New Orleans a short couple of weeks later. For at least two years now, the city of New Orleans has pl- been planning to remove several Confederate monuments which supposedly hurt the feelings of Negro residents and social justice warriors. But there are other more sinister designs which are the true motivation for the movement to erase white history from the streets of all of the cities of the South. I will not get into those here except to say that the Jewish writer and journalist Walter Isaacson who has been associated with the New York Times, CNN, and various globalist institutions and causes, has been involved since 2015 with the New Orleans Tricentennial Commission, which is planning the city's 300th anniversary commemoration in 2018. And since 2016, he is a member of the New Orleans City Planning Commission, we will have a pre-recorded segment which we did this afternoon with Nathan Lawrenson which explains this in detail and the underlying reasons for the monument removal in detail. Nathan is um, very well studied in that particular area. During this period, the Confederate monuments had become an issue. And the city mayor, Mitch Landrew, who appointed Isaacson to both posts, has obediently followed Isaacson's anti-Southern policies. Another figure in this is a man named John Cummings, whom we have not yet fully investigated, but the more we look at him, the more scrutiny he deserves. Cummings, who is apparently white, is a retired lawyer who purchased the Whitney Plantation maybe 17 years ago, refurbished its antebellum mansion, and has converted the estate into what is now billed as America's First Slavery Museum. I do not know if it is true, but when I was in New Orleans, I heard a rumor that Cummings was going to receive the Confederate monuments from the city for his museum, which would indeed be a pity. Mayor Landrew and the New Orleans City Council, who are obvious tools for the globalist one-worlders such as Isaacson, John Cummings, and other wealthy social justice warriors, plan to take down three other Confederate monuments, which are those memorializing Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Generals Robert E. Lee and PGT Beauregard. After a victory in the courts, their path has been cleared, and they only began at Liberty Place. According to a website that writes on Southern politics and culture called The Hayride, Landrew and Cummings have had a relationship since 1990, 
And in an article titled, A Historical Look into the Landrieu-Cummings Relationship, they have documented several transactions between the city of New Orleans and Cummings, which have helped to greatly enrich both men. In one of those transactions, Landrieu's father, Moon Landrieu, brokers a deal between Cummings and the city of New Orleans. Cummings buys an office building for $2 million, flips it to the city a few months later for $2.7 million, makes $700,000, and Moon Landrieu himself collects the real estate fee, which was like 58 something thousand dollars. This is a crooked relationship for a long time, evidently. At this point in our podcast, and before I continue with the main body of my own article, I am going to play an interview which I recorded this afternoon with Nathan Lawrenson, a host of the Battle of New Orleans radio program. We have appeared on that program three times in recent months. However, Nathan himself was only there on the first brief occasion. For several years, Nathan has been looking into what is really going on in New Orleans city government, and it is certainly foreboding. When we return, in about 50 minutes, we will present the balance of our report on our trip to New Orleans. I pray you enjoy this. Nathan Lawrenson, welcome to Christagenia. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on, Mr. Fink. It was uh, great meeting you uh, last weekend. Uh, I really appreciated that. It was great seeing you here in New Orleans, and we really appreciate you making the journey, you know, to New Orleans to, you know, help save the monuments, uh, protect our history and our heritage. So I, I want to extend the olive branch and, and thank you. Well, thank you. It was our pleasure as well. Well, we really enjoyed being there. No, no absolutely. You know, we, they didn't take down the Lee Monument, but Three days after you left, the Jefferson Davis uh, monument was removed. It was taken down in three pieces uh, by the fire, the New Orleans Fire Department. Right, we saw that, and and there was a considerable crowd. I don't know if you were there for that or, or not. You were there for the Liberty Place monument removal, which happened in the middle of the night back in April. But but there was a apparently a considerable crowd of local residents out there at the um, removal of the Jefferson Davis Monument, um, waving Confederate yes. flags? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, they removed the monument. I believe it was. they started working around 3, three to 4 Thursday morning. Um, I think by the time it, it took them several hours to get the project done, six, seven hours. Um, when, when I showed up on scene, it was around 11.30 p.m. Wednesday night. There was roughly 50 or so pro-monument supporters, um, you know, with all different kinds of beliefs. Um, but they, I will give them all credit. They were all there supporting uh, the monuments and the history. So there was a free speech zone for the pro-monument faction, and there was a free speech zone across the street for the anti monument faction, many of them being uh, Antifa or Antifa, uh, you know, many of them have affiliates with many groups here in New Orleans, many of these rabble-rousing groups, uh, like Black Lives Matter or Take Them Down NOLA, which is just a spinoff 
uh, from Black Lives Matter. So they had us broke down into two uh, free speech zones. And, you know, the crowd grew. Uh, there was probably initially probably 25 to 30 uh, pro-monument and 50 to 60 anti-monument. And then, you know, by the time I got there, there was a, around – it grew to about 100 pro-monument, and then I would say 150 of the anti-FA uh, crowd. And wow. they might have had upwards of 200 at its height. So the police, what they did, Bill, the police ended up, before they started you know, running their operation, they actually put both factions right next to each other, which we were only spaced apart well, with, with a center barricade approximately 15 to 20 feet apart. So the police moved everyone into a perfect storm so they could have their little show up and everybody could be screaming at each other and, you know, yelling, uh, you know, profane things. So, you know, they, they got that. And then once they put us over there, we really couldn't leave. You didn't really have any freedom to walk down Canal Street to get to a vehicle. They was trying to usher people behind the church about a half a block away, and you had to walk behind the dumpster in this little side cut and to come out into this back street. And uh, I refused to walk that way at one point because I really felt uh, my, my well-being or my safety was being threatened. So I came back. I stood there for a little while longer until about – I stayed out there till about 5 o'clock a.m. And, you know, I really didn't want to see them remove the monument. So I, I decided uh, it's time for me to leave. Well, that's a shame that they have to operate that way. I'm kind of um, encouraged that there were 100 people there on, on the pro-monument side, but because it doesn't seem like there were 100 locals at Lee Circle that were pro-monument. I mean, that's the, that, that's the impression I had. No, no, and that's a good impression, uh, Bill, and I, I agree totally with that. Um, there was a lot of locals there, and there was still some of the – um, people that weren't locals, you had Arlene Barnum out there, the uh, the black Confederate lady. Um, she was out there and, and some of the people that were with her. But I will say this on the pro-monument side, there were there were a few people that drove in from Alabama and Mississippi. Um, but it was mainly, it, it, I would say it was probably 70% local. So th- th- that is definitely encouraging for sure. But it, but it wasn't enough people. We should have had ten or 15,000 people out there right. uh, supporting th- this monument, you know, their heritage, their history. You know, I called up many radio shows the next day very upset about that, you know, demanding why the people weren't on the streets. Where were they at? Because at, at that point, peacefully, that's going to be the only way we're able to have any kind of effect or stop, you know, this vulture, Miss Landrieu, from from removing the remaining two monuments that they want to remove is going to be sheer numbers, and it's hard to get it. And so if we can't get the people um, exercising their First Amendment rights and exercising, you know, just the right to protect what they've paid for, then, you know, we're getting what we deserve. Well, like we said, and and like I had an impression on an, an impression last Sunday in in uptown New Orleans, it, it's the white population seems oblivious. They're already disconnected from their culture and their history. Yes, they've been they've been taught and told to hate themselves. They've been taught and told, you know, uh, to just pander to every other ethnicity, um, every race, every religion, but their own. 
and and I will say I will uh, and, and to really kind of you know give a backdrop on that there was this one gentleman there was these four black gentlemen that came stood on the pro monument side and they're all involved with taking down NOLA and Black Lives Matter. One of the gentlemen, his name is Quest. Um, he's not a local. He come here from New York. He studied at a Jewish high school in New York, and he works with taking down NOLA's uh, lead guide, Malcolm Suber. Malcolm Suber also is not from New Orleans. He is from South Carolina. So we have these two gentlemen that I definitely unequivocally believe are on uh, globalist minions payroll for sure because they're the ones that are rabble rousing a lot in the communities and they had these four gentlemen standing there on our side a friend of mine started engaging uh, the gentleman quest and started you know really trying telling him that, that he knows who's behind him and he knows all about his history and really what's going on and all the jewish funding that he's getting and, you know, they wouldn't even blink an eye. But my buddy started really getting under his skin because I was watching Quest Adam, his Adam's apple, and it was, he was starting to swallow. So I, I could tell he was getting very upset. Well, they left. And when they left and went back on their own side, there was this one capitulating white guy with a cane who come running up to Quest, and he's trying to shake his hand. Oh, man, let's just work together, blah, blah, blah. You know, Coca-Cola commercial, United Nations, yeah, everybody right. stand together. Sickening. And Quest slapped his hand away from him. Just, you know, like, get away from me. Yeah, and right, he wants guy, nothing to do with him. Yeah, he wants nothing to do with him, right. And he just kept, the white guy kept just following him, like, just keep kept capitulating to him, and Quest just keeps slapping him away, like, get out of here, get out of here. Blacks have you know, no and, and, care for groveling white liberals. They don't care for them. No, but they will use these groveling white liberals to, you know, uh, destroy the community. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, I was looking into Take Him Down NOLA, and I came across, and, and I'm I'm writing her up in my article in, in a couple of lines, I came across this Angela Kinlaw. She's basically like a black carpetbagger. She, she's from San Diego. She, she's a, um, I think she's a lawyer from San Diego, and, and she involves herself with Black Lives Matter, with Take Him Down NOLA. Right. Her political ideology, according to what I've seen on her Facebook page, is noticeably Marxist. And on her Facebook page, she openly supports economic racism for Negroes. That these people, you know, they accuse us of being racists. That they are racists. We Racism is natural. Sure. I mean, in my opinion, racism, it's tribalism, and we're all tribal. We're all, we're all animals in that sense. So it's, it's only natural to really veer and steer, you know, with your own natural tribe. So, you know, they've kind of pushed this multiculturalism and, and, and just tried to brainwash us with this giant melting pot and, you know, giant gumbo pot here in Louisiana. And I will say, <laughs> There is a lot of great history with Creole people here in Louisiana, and there is a lot, and I'm friends with a lot of Creole people. You know, they're all mixed, black, white, um, Indian, Hispanic, French. I mean, well, French is European and white, but, but you know, it's just a whole a mixed mash of, of ethnicities. And so, I mean, that has 
made some of Louisiana's culture and has made, given us some very um, rich culture here in Louisiana. Um, do I support that today? Absolutely not, um, because it is destroying the European heritage, period. Right. It's it's bound to. And, and that's how they've um, cornered the, these white kids on Magazine Street, right? They're the example at, at hand, that they've disconnected them from their history. They don't teach them anything good about white history and white culture. They uplift all of these other histories and cultures. They create history for these other races that don't really exist to, to uplift them. And, and that, so they have no value for their own culture. They don't hold it with any esteem. No, no, you're absolutely right. And they've been taught to hate themselves so much. I mean, the school systems now are so vile. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. And, you know, the school system and the monument removal, it's all tied in together. And there's a gentleman. Right, of course, the front of this here in New Orleans is this uh, mayor. I, I don't refer to him as his first name, Mitch. I, I call him Horrell Andrew because he has spread his legs for these band of internationalists that has basically usurped New Orleans. Um, ever since Hurricane Katrina, they came to New Orleans and they just handed out hundreds of billions and even trillions of dollars in grant money. And, of course, the politicians accepted every penny of this grant money. But through this grant money has all of the tentacles of the global government. And what I mean by this, this is why we see Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030 or Sustainable Development or Smart Growth or however they want to spin it. This is why we see this so prevalent in New Orleans is because of the block grant money that they have accepted through HUD and through all these United Nations non-government uh, organizations. And this is where really the monument push comes from. I mean, there's so many of these internationalists that are involved, and one of the main ones is Walter Isaacson. And if your listeners aren't familiar with Walter Isaacson, Bill, he, the former CEO uh, of CNN, the former head of Time Magazine, but his most influential position for 14 years, he was the CEO and president of the Aspen Institute. And the Aspen Institute is similar to like an American Bilderberg group. It is a roundtable for these globalists. It is like a higher pecking order than the Brookings Institute. And you see, this is where a lot of the, you know, this is, it's like a giant think tank. And this is where the policies come from. This is where the, the movers and the shakers, you know, make their policies to implement to all the peasants. You know, and this is how they are implementing global government on a local level on every city and town is that you have these groups like the Aspen Institute that doles out grant money, but they're basically an arm of the United Nations, period. And, and you know, there's so many levels to it that they're able to kind of hide and shield themselves from being part of the U.N. because it's, it's leveled off. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll create another non-governmental organization between the Aspen Institute 
and the UN. So it's just too many layers for the dumbed down population to really uh, understand or conceive. Right. You would have to sit and, and research the the source of the grant monies and, and, and what organizations the monies are being funded to and who's in control of them, who's on the boards. That, that, that's a career. It, yes. It, it, man, it is a career. And look, I've been studying this Agenda 21 probably for 10 years now. And, it, and just, it really took me, I really didn't get a firm grasp on it until a few years ago because it is, it is so complicated. And I want to give a quick backdrop. It, I'll be real brief with this. For your listeners who aren't familiar with this United Nations Agenda 21 uh, Sustainable Development Plan, the UN Agenda 21 Sustainable Development is an action plan to implement worldwide uh, inventory and control all land, all water, all minerals, uh, all, all people, all animals, all construction, all means of production, energy, all education, uh, all information, and all human beings in the world. And, and so that covers everything. Basically, this is all under the cloak of environmentalism, right? Absolutely. They hide behind the green mask. Absolutely. It, it's, um, yes, it's a nefarious agenda. I, I was looking today, and the state of Alabama had outlawed um, compliance with Agenda 21. And other states well, are considering that, I believe. Well, that, that, that is fantastic. Um, and I hope, you know, they say that, though, but I, I'm going to have to do some, some further research on that because if they outlaw if they outlaw it, but yet they still receive federal grant money from the United States government or some of these other organizations, regardless if they outlaw it or not, they're still going to accept all the regulations and rules that are going to come with this money. And if they don't, then they don't receive the money. So. I mean, on face, they may have, and, 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 and they may have, but I'm going to have to do some further research because there's been some other areas that have said this before. And, you know, on paper, they say, all right, we're not going to follow the rules with Agenda 21, but yet they still take the money, and when they do that, they still accept it. Well, that's interesting to know because I'm really not up on Agenda 21. I mean, I've heard about it. I've been hearing about it a few years, but it, it's just not my area of study, right? Sure, sure. And, and I, I'm sure your listeners are probably like, what does this have to do with the monuments? Well, well I'm, I'm going to try to explain. There there are documents. And, I mean, the Agenda 21 master plan is so large. And he, here's another thing. Let me back up. Every city planning organization is an Agenda 21 planning organization. It's run by the American Planners Association. They hail from D.C. and San Francisco, and it's a U.N non-governmental organization, and all the planners that come to the town are never from that plan, from that town. And that's who sets the master plan for the layout of each town and city. And that's where they're implementing and how they're implementing their global government. It's through the planning and zoning departments. And a lot of people miss that. You know, so when people say, oh, yeah, we're, I'm going down to the planning meeting of uh, such and such uh, town here, they're really, uh, it's really not a local agenda. They're getting a worldwide global government agenda right there in their town. And you have internationalists that are now building your city. 
and the way they think it should look. And, and they're stealing the they're stealing it from the local people. And it's really a shame. From what I've seen just this last week and a half, two weeks, if it were left entirely to true native um, New Orleanians or whatever y'all call yourselves, right? New Orleanians. Right. That if it yeah, were yeah, left to them, these monuments wouldn't be molest- molested at all. People no, wouldn't care. They, they, they would just they, sit there. Go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I said people wouldn't care. The monuments would just remain. Uh, I mean, I don't see a whole lot of um, support from natives to take these monuments down. No, 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 there's not. They don't care. Look, I, I have an older black gentleman that lives next to me. He's a musician and a construction worker. He's 62 years old. He could care less, okay? I, yesterday, here's a quick example of... Here's a quick example. There, I was on a job site, and there was a black cleaning lady that was there, and I started talking to her, and my coworker starts engaging her about the whole power system, about the whole, you know, and who really runs the world and who really controls everything. And, you know, he starts explaining to her about the Jewish influence, and, and she's already aware of it. She already knows about it. And uh, so I, I, I quickly turned that into the monument discussion, and she says, who cares? And I say, I totally agree. She said, and, and she even agreed with me that Mayor Landrew was using this as a very divisive topic and, and, you know, to divide black and white people here in New Orleans and keep us fighting amongst each other. And she was, she was against removing the monuments. And most black people, especially the older ones, they're against it because they know, number one, they're just some statues. They're not going to change anybody's well-being, let's right. be honest. Number two, you know, they understand that's just part of history. And there was black Confederates that fought with these people. You know, so some of their own ancestry and history is represented by these statues. Today I went to the Take Them Down Nola website, and... It's actually hosted in New York. It's under private registration so that you can't see who owns it. Right? It's under private registration. You have to have a valid legal reason to see who owns it. And they have an online petition that's been online for over a year. It only has 1,761 signatures. (laughs) With all of their... um, Advertising and and posturing, they only have 1,761 signatures on this petition, and anybody could sign the petition. You never have to be in New Orleans to sign the petition. Yeah, Yeah. and that's that's the point you're making. That's the point I've been making. Everybody here locally, there is no support for this, but they don't care. They're going to use this group. These internationalists are going to use this group to stir up as much fire and chaos here on a local level, and it doesn't matter what the people want. And what I've been finding out, Bill, is, you know, get back to this this gentleman, Walter Isaacson, okay? You know, people are probably asking, well, what does this have to do with the monuments? Well, in Agenda 21, they want to kill all cultures. They want to remove any, you know, thing that looks like the old way, the old culture. They want to remove monuments artwork, the whole nine yards, okay? So Walter Isaacson and David Brooks from the New York Times 
believe it's the New York Times, wrote an article. Um, I believe it was the month before or the month after the Dylan Roof shooting because Mayor Landrew here in New Orleans has used the whole phony Dylan Roof issue to, you know, push this, this, this whole narrative through the media. So um, Walter Isaacson and David Brooks wrote a piece detailing the case to remove the monuments. And they wrote that, I believe it was in the New York Times, before Mitch Landrew started his whole push. Okay? Now, I can't even find this piece anymore. I can't find it. I even went to the Google Wayback Machine, and I tried. Man, I shared this article like a hundred times on social media when, uh, you know, they, they, they wrote this article two, two years ago. And just to prove that they already had a plan in place before the whole Dylan Roof controversy, the Southern Poverty Law Center, on their own website, a month before the Dylan Roof incident, had a, uh, a deal called "Resisting the Hate," and it was a whole deal how you know that we need to remove the monuments nationwide, basically, you know, all Civil War monuments in Alabama or, or anywhere, pick a state, and that we need to remove them. That way, we can bring all the people together. So they already had a plan in place. And they needed that catalyst, and that's what they got with this this whole Dylan Roof incident. I think they only used so, Dylan Roof to sell it to white people, to to sure. to um, humiliate and and put white people to subdue them, so that they don't protest. They use Dylan sure. Roof. That's what I think they're doing with it. But because there were Black Lives Matter protests, violent ones, in North Carolina. Months before the Dylan Roof incident, so sure. so they, they they got this false flag. I, I don't know what they want to. I, I don't know what I want to call the Dylan Roof incident because I yeah. have all different kinds of versions of what really happened. But but it, they're using it only to cow white people to subdue them. Right. R regardless if it was a real event or a manufactured event right. or a staged event. It's so hard to tell now at this point because there's been so much evidence, um, just overwhelming evidence of all those incidents that have basically happened in the last hundred years um, that it's really hard to believe any of their, their lying stories anymore. Um, it doesn't matter if it was real or fake. The end results are the same. You know, it's completely the same. Right. So exactly. after Walter, Walter Isaacson wrote this piece, and Mitch Landrieu ran ran with that whole narrative. Mitch Landrieu inserts Walter Isaacson, who's just a writer, mind you, into his planning and zoning department, and he started running his planning uh, commission. So people have been asking me, well, what does Walter Isaacson know about planning and zoning? I said, what he knows is that he knows Agenda 21 and sustainable development. He runs the leading sustainable development Agenda 21 pushing organization in the country, in maybe the world, which is the Aspen Institute. So you can kind of start, you know, uh, dotting the I's here and kind of start closing up the circle. You can kind of see the connections with the monument, Agenda 21, who's behind it, who's pushing it here on a local level. And, and what I'm starting to find is that Walter Isaacson really his ilk are running many aspects of New Orleans. I started finding that uh, the Aspen Institute 
formed another NGO. They formed another NGO, but it's it's just part of them called New New Schools for New Orleans. Okay, and that's basically just so they can start pushing the sustainable development, smart growth to all the to all the uh, children here in New Orleans. And they bring in another uh, new a guy from New York. He was born in New Orleans, but he grew up in New York. Another uh, a tribes member, Michael Stone. He actually ran some of these similar programs in Pennsylvania and destroyed their school school system. So we see here in New Orleans, we have these internationalists now that are running the school systems. And I'm finding out through all of the, their little initiatives, they're basically running the whole city uh, through their uh, sustainable development plans. Well, and, well, there and you is, look at – go I'm, ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. There is a, a, a comprehensive part of Agenda 21 called Agenda 21 for Culture. And I haven't read it. <laughs> I'd like to read it one day. But it, it's definitely a part of the plan. Yes, and, and, and there's so much to this. There's, I mean, the, the documentation on this is so vast. I mean, we would have to employ a team of researchers for years to be able to really go through all of this. I mean, they've been working on this since really since 1979. I mean, the socialist Grove Brutland, who was the vice president of the Netherlands, um, really pushed this in 1985, and she wrote the initiative, the, the, the initial book. Um, called Our Common Future, I believe was the name of it. So, so it comes from, you know, socialist ideology. So, you know, as this morning, and I'm doing some research, you know, to have this conversation with you, I start looking at, you know, the, this school the, this school program that this uh, Aspen Institute, you know, spinoff, and I start looking at the people. We have Michael Stone, um, Jen Kurtz is involved. Um, Jenny Katz, and you start reading these names, and it, it, it sounds like it's, uh, you know, the credits of the Schindler's List. Not, not too many French Catholics. <laughs> no. And Louisiana is is Catholic. I mean, we're we're Christian. You know, 50, we have the highest um, uh, uh, Catholic uh, membership uh, in, in the country, right here in Louisiana, 50%. So why do we have so many of these tribesmen? who are not from here, coming here to usurp us, you know, to brainwash our children, and you name it. And I have another quick example of this. A friend of mine posted on Facebook two days ago, um, his daughter, who's around four or five years old, she said, look, that Mitch Landrew, that's the mayor, he's teaching us not to eat animals. And what she's talking about is, you know, I guess he came into some of the schools or there's some you know, documentation that they're showing the schools to not how it's bad to eat meat and if you go look at the United Nations they, there's a big push and this is all part of this agenda this agenda 21 or agenda 2030 to get us off from excuse me from eating meat and that we'll only be allowed to eat a uh, meat-like substance once or twice a year and this mayor is pushing this garbage to our, our little babies Wow. And it just never stops. Everywhere I turn, I see this agenda, whether it's the monuments, whether it's the schools, whether it's the police department. And this is what's running our country now, man. It just And it sickens me, Bill, because nobody really even knows or understands when they see it. People need to understand when they see smart growth, sustainable, sustainable development, sustainability, when they see uh, 
uh, terms like urban this or urban that or, or agenda, or when they see the terms, it may be Fairhope, Alabama, but it may say Fairhope 2030. That's a, a United Nations plan that they're seeing. So I'm just trying to give you know the listeners some information so they can see these buzzwords and hear these buzzwords and understand that that's a global plan that they're seeing. That's Agenda 21. That's amazing, right? It, it's like a undercover backdoor entrance into homogenizing the whole world so that we're all like the the, the Mexicans sitting in the desert down down in Mexico and sitting in poverty, basically. Yes. With, with no yes. culture. They, they want to... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, with yeah, no, no culture. culture. I mean, they want to remove all our cultures and, and put them in a blender... So, so that we're, we're all of the same status, and and no, there's no difference between us. That's Marxism, right? That's communism. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and they want us to look the same. They want us all wearing little Mao Zedong outfits. Uh, they right. want us all living living in the prison cells. That's why they push. You know, this tiny house revolution. Now. Right. This is why there's there's 107 square foot apartments in the French Quarter that they push for $197,000. I mean, wow. this is what they want. They want us living on top of each other, homogenized, like you said, no culture, um, using all of our energy and resources to build up the civilization for the globalists, for the internationalists, for these tribes members. I mean, that's that's what they want. They want to usurp all, all of our rights and freedoms and, and just really steal our energy and steal our soul so they can have it. So so did Katrina give them the the, the entrance to, to implement this in New Orleans as possibly an incubator to test it across the rest of the country eventually? Yes. Yes, and, and look, look, Bill, I, I'm about to say something that, that may sound incredible. It may be controversial, and, and I may be reaching just a tad with this. But look, Katrina ran a path that no other hurricane on recorded record has ever ran. It ran across the panhandle of Florida, made a giant loop out into the Atlantic, made a big giant circle, and then came back. And why I'm saying this is, I believe they may have steered this hurricane because it's on record. They have the ability to dissipate and steer hurricanes. Dr. Ben Livingston, the father of weather weapons, ran over 260 hurricane operations where they were dissipating and steering storms using silver iodide. And people will say, well, man, that's just too far out there. We don't have that technology. No, we actually do have that technology. And we've had it for a long. We've had it for a long time. I mean, during the Vietnam, we made uh, it flood on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I mean, that's that's on record. That's irrefutable. Um, you, anybody can look this up. Um, so we've had this technology, and, and I say that that's a high possibility because right after that, there was so much. There was trillions of dollars that came through through the insurance companies, and there was just so much money that that was came through New I mean, New Orleans received more grant money than any other nation or the rest of the nations combined in the history of the world after that. That was the catalyst they needed, just like it was the catalyst Dylan Roof created. That was the catalyst they needed 
to to bring all this, you know, to New Orleans and the rest of the country. So I think it's a high possibility that they could have steered that storm over us. I may be reaching on that, but I, I, I'm telling you, the more and more I look into this, the more and more I, I start pondering that um, because it, it's 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 a high possibility. Well, well, there was one thing I was startled by, and that was the number of people down there living under the interstate in abject poverty yeah. and begging on the highways in, in, the, in broad daylight. Yeah. There's tens and tens of thousands of homeless here. I mean, it is amazing the amount of homeless people here in New Orleans. They come from all over the country. Um, they'll come here, and many of them are just system buckers. They don't want to live under, you know, societal uh, right. strains or whatever. So they just they don't they just come here. They don't want to work, and they just beg. I mean, everywhere you go, um, even it's even encroaching to, to some of the more affluent part of towns. You know, there's a beggar on the corner. Um, and, and we see this. It's like they've just opened the doors. Um, we can't take care of people on the streets, but we can spend millions of dollars, um, you know, for the police and the fire department and for the removal of monuments. And Mitch Landrew said through the court system when he won his little court case to remove these monuments, he stated zero tax dollars were going to be used. And, and, and Bill, you were here in the city a week in before last, you've seen the tax dollars hard at work. I mean, that was clearly uh, taxpayers' money uh, at waste. Oh, yeah, the cops all over the place on the roofs. There were hundreds of cops there. I, I mean, that, that there were, from what we heard rumors about SWAT teams hiding around the corners of buildings. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but we saw plenty of police officers. And, and the, the demonstrations have to be figured into the budget of the monument removal. I mean, they had to know they were coming. Each officer and each firefighter, it's 50-plus dollars an hour, 50-plus. Okay, I, I can't confirm any snipers um, at the Lee rally, but I can confirm snipers at the Liberty Place, at the Liberty Monument uh, removal. I, I seen there was two teams and they would rotate and we've seen their tactical rifles um i've seen them on their backs so i can't confirm there there were snipers that had their weapons drawn on 15 to 20 monument supporters um they never had them never once had they had their weapons drawn on the antifa crowd and, and even the um, even though I didn't see any snipers, there were, there were cops on the roofs with binoculars. They were watching over everything. They were on several roofs, um, not just one. But I didn't see rifles, and that's true. But the um, the cops in the street clearly favored the the the, um, the Antifa crowd, and and they clearly favored the people that w were not the protesters. Right. So it was ridiculous. What well, one more person I would like to discuss here is this John Cummings. He's another interesting figure in this whole puzzle, isn't he? Yes. No. Absolutely. This is another missing missing key to the puzzle that the um, average um, news watcher or average American out there is missing. John Cummings owns the Whitney Plantation. Okay, let me back up. John Cummings, Mayor Landrews. Daddy, Moon Landrieu, was a crooked senator and mayor of New Orleans. 
many people are probably familiar with Landrew's sister, Mary Landrew, who was a high-ranking senator for years uh, out of Louisiana, and she was a real, real pain. But Moon Landrew, Mayor Landrew's father, had was was close friends with John Cummings and had many back deal um, real estate deals with him, to where they both profited millions of dollars off these deals, and many of them were, quite frankly, illegal. You know, Moon Landry setting up John Cummings with uh, real estate deals while Mil- Moon Landry was still in office, and they would both, you know, make two or three or four million dollars off right. the deal. So they're, they're, it, it's blatantly illegal, and that's where John Cummings made a, a ton of money. Um, he owns the Whitney Plantation, and he's he, the Whitney Plantation has been fledgling. It hasn't been doing so hot, and he's been wanting to create this slave museum as well. Um, so one of the things that he wants to do is put the monuments into his Whitney Place plantation or his slave planta- or his slave museum. That way, you know, he can get uh, people to come in as an attraction, and it can save uh, his plantation. Right. He can or help use push them as a his, revenue his... Right. I mean, to, to me, I mean that. That's just blatant corporatism. I mean, that's just blatant because you have, you know, the government merging with uh, private business, you know, to to really set forth, um, you know, things uh, for the city that the the people don't want. I mean, how can those statues are over 100 years old? Landrieu didn't own them. He doesn't own them. They right. were paid for by private donations were raised to erect these monuments, and they were erected by some of the most prized artists, famed artists of their time and generation. They're worth tens of millions of dollars. So my question is, how is it legal, and how will it be legal for Landrieu to give these monuments to someone like John Cummings to put up in his plantation or his museum. It just, it, it's appalling. And I don't think people are really grasping and understanding. And I think if they did, they would be completely outraged. And I think the monument should really belong to the people of the state of Louisiana, not merely the people of the city. Man, I think they belong to the country. I think they belong right. to the whole South. These, these are national historic, I mean, the Civil War, I know the people from the North, um, not, I'm not saying all people, but many people from the North and, and these band of internationalists especially would like for everyone to erase and forget um, this history. But look, let's face it, the Civil War really, the, the, whole, the whole issue with slavery really wasn't pushed by black or whites. I mean, it was. There was black and white slave owners, but it was really... Mainly, um, for my uh, historical reference point, of Jewish people that owned most of, you know, the plantations and the slave trading here in this country. Right. And if you look at Jefferson Davis's cabinet, many of these people, the money people, were Jewish, were Jews, right. and they wanted to keep the slave trade alive because they were profiting millions of dollars, Absolutely. and they, you know, used that against the black and white people. 
Absolutely. The Jews, the, the biggest slave-owning family in, in New Orleans at one time was Monsanto. <laughs> That's where they yeah, got their start. Yes, That's where they got their start. So, so they should turn, that they should take the Monsanto Corporation and turn it over to Negroes. Uh, I mean, really, right? I mean, there's your reparations. The Monsanto's Uh, got their start with the plantation owning slaves. I mean, if if we use their same logic, then then yes. I mean, Monsanto's worth, what, tens and tens of billions of dollars, then then I guess, (laughs) you know, the, the Negroes could just get it. Right. Give it to them. Get rid of that company. <laughs> we need to get I, I tell rid you of what, it. I would be all for that, Bill. If we could get rid of that <laughs> evil company, shoot, man, sign me up. Where do I sign that petition? That, that's my point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to me, right, right, the people of the city, the, the, the government, of demographics change, politicians change, the, the monuments belong to the South, but especially to, to at least the people of the entire state, what is one city to decide that they go? It, it's not their own. It's not their heritage alone, and and governments are temporary. They shouldn't have that ability to do that. I, I think it's the short sightedness, perhaps, of the the state or, or, or patriots across the state to see that something like this wouldn't arise, right? Especially in today's right. political climate. What we had mentioned, possibly the Andrew Jackson monument being threatened because they would love to get rid of that too but you know that monument is on a national historic historic places register the andrew jackson yeah, monument. Well, yes and, and i i want to say i don't have this in my notes or right off top but i want to say so is jefferson davis i mean all of these all of these monuments were registered in some form shape or fashion uh with various um, you know, historical registries. As far as I know, they would have that they would have never been able to get them removed so easily if they were registered with the federal historic register or, or whatever I, that official registry is. No, it's a shame. I, but I think I, I'm pretty sure Jeff Davis was, and he was. He, all the politicians sat on their hands. Okay, Billy Nungesser, the lieutenant governor. He kicked the can down the road and just tried to petition Donald Trump. Okay, we knew that was going to be a waste of time. Of and then course. he sat on his hands and said, oh, I can't do nothing. Even though he's over tourism and he's over the monuments himself, and he, he's a Republican from uh, Plaquemines Parish, and he sat on his hands. And then the attorney general, and everybody had high remarks for these two before this incident happened. I mean, I even thought that, you know, I'm not a, I don't like most politicians, but I mean, I, they've never showed me to, you know, be complete terrible politicians anyway. I mean, they, they at least seem to, um, you know, love some of the community a little bit. And Jeff Landry, the attorney general, completely sat on his hands as well, never filed one lawsuit, never did anything. They both kicked the can down the road. Donald Trump didn't do anything. Uh, Landry didn't do anything, and neither did none yet. They all sat there on their hands. That's incredible. I, I, I don't know what more to say. I, it's a it's a pity. It really is. And, and I, I hope that the... Um, the white voters, or, or at least the patriotic ones, that are actually paying attention to this in, in Louisiana, 
remember that when um, November comes along, when the next election comes along. The the problem is uh, they usually forget. They 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 forget, um, and, and that's why you know I've been trying to run run for mayor, you know, as a grass, grassroots candidate with really zero money and zero political experience. But I'm really the only candidate here in New Orleans that's running for mayor that even knows or understands any of these issues and has any capability of really pointing any of this out. The rest of them are all lawyers or judges. There's a couple businessmen that are running as well, but they don't understand until we get these internationalists out of our communities with all of their sustainable garbage, then we could damn near put Jesus Christ as mayor, and it's not going to do a bit of good because we're going to have these devils, um, you know, uh, ruining the whole process the whole time. Right. Right. I mean, Christians can't can't coexist with, with these devils. White Christians and Jews cannot coexist. They no, can't. it's like oil and water. It's and oil and water. It doesn't mix. If you read the gospel, that's a lesson that Jesus Christ taught us. Yeah. Yes. Over and over again. So, so it's um, it, it, it's something Christians well, don't get. I, I don't understand it. it. It's been a disconnect for hundreds of years because they don't it, read their Bibles. It, I, I was raised no, a Catholic, it, and and I was never encouraged to read the Bible. I, I was a Catholic right, no. through tenth grade, never encouraged to read the Bible. Yet you, you went to church, you listened to the priest. You listened right. to the nuns in school. You had your catechism studies when you were when you were in grade school, and 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 that's about it. I mean, the Protestants, most of them aren't much better off. That they're not. That no. they might read their Bibles, but they don't believe anything in it unless their pastor tells it, tells them how to interpret it. And most of the Protestants, they will sell their soul uh, for Israel. Yeah, they worship Jews. They worship Jews instead yeah. of Jesus. It's incredible. Jesus wasn't a Jew. <laughs> Nathan, I, I really appreciate you being here this evening. And um, I'm thankful. What can I say? It, it's You definitely seem to have a grip on what's really going on in New Orleans. And I really appreciate the opportunity, Bill. And we appreciated you coming on our show, Battle of New Orleans, last Wednesday. And I look forward to you know having you. Uh, again this Wednesday. So we really appreciate your hard work um, a as well. And, you know, it's just very frustrating. I'm going to say this, that, you know, and myself, I'm, I was raised Catholic. Um, you know, I'm Christian. Um, and we've been taught that, you know, we're, we're all Judeo-Christians. And I, and I just hate that term. And when I hear that term, I just, it's nauseating. <laughs> And, you know, that, that's something that I've been, you know, trying to wake up some of these Christians with, at, you know, as of late and just explaining to them that, that, look, you know, Jesus died fighting these people. Right. You know, th this, we have this all confused. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I mean, they, that they hated him and he hated them. And, and they hated right. the apostles and the apostles hated them and, and called them devils and, 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 what what I, I could go on I, I could get started on this and that's Christian identity right <laughs> that that's right. that these Jews are not who they say they are they simply aren't it can be proven historically without a doubt and and maybe someday I'll get on 
Battle of New Orleans, and we'll actually have enough time so I could sit and, and explain that logically, <laughs> because it's true. The Jews are not who they say they are. No, no, absolutely, and, and that that invitation will be extended, and, and it will happen, uh, and we'll we'll set, we'll set that up in a couple of months. But but I look forward to having you on uh, this this, uh, this coming up Wednesday. Thank you, Nathan, and and I appreciate you being here. God bless. Uh, thank you, and God bless. God bless to you, listeners. Okay, that's the end of our pre-recorded segment with Nathan Lawrenson. Now I'm going to present the balance of the article I had written earlier today and, and actually started back on Tuesday called The Brattle of New Orleans. It, it repeats a few of the things that we had spoke about with Nathan, topics that we just couldn't avoid in, in, in the general scheme of things, but that's okay. I think that'll be fine. According to the 2010 census, the city of New Orleans has a demographic population of, of Negroes that is at 60%. The city is 60% Negroes. The state of Louisiana is only about 31 or 32%, if my memory serves me correctly. And Negroes hold four of the seven seats on the city council. The remaining seats belong to a pair of apparently white women, I'll say apparently, because I really don't know. And a man whose race is rather ambiguous. Looking at him, I just couldn't tell. These seven politicians alone had voted to remove the Confederate monuments from New Orleans. However, the real question, which has probably not been addressed anywhere, but Nathan and I had just hit on it, it is whether a local government in any city has the right to eradicate the cultural heritage which has been shared by an entire state, or in this case, even an entire region, simply because the political climate or the demographics inside the city have shifted. Demographic Demographic shifts are often only temporary. However, the erasing of a culture and its history is much more permanent. This issue has been raised elsewhere, but probably not to the extent of what is now very rapidly occurring in New Orleans. There are bills which have been introduced into the Louisiana State Legislature, but even if they pass, they are far too late to prevent the monument removal. Hearing that there had been a small contingent of demonstrators defending their southern heritage who stationed themselves at some of the monuments in downtown New Orleans, and that there would be wider demonstrations on Sunday, May 7th, knowing some of the people who planned to participate, we also desired to attend and to lend our voice to this worthy cause. The call for the wider demonstrations was sparked the week before, when a military-style truck full of Antifa hoodlums terrorized people at the city's Jefferson Davis Monument and had also vandalized the Beauregard Monument. As we wrote this article, the Jefferson Davis Monument was also removed in the middle of the night in the early hours of May 11th, just a couple of days ago. Observing nationwide trends in the cities of America these last few decades, 
We know that the destruction of white Christian culture is not going to stop at some Civil War statues. After our Confederate heroes are eradicated from our memory, it will be the founders of the nation, and then perhaps more recent icons of our white society will be under attack. Another famous memorial which the current residents of New Orleans seem to loathe is the Andrew Jackson Monument at Jackson Square in the French Quarter, although that may only be saved because it was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1960. There are at least three other smaller Confederate monuments that we heard nothing about which commemorates which commemorate Charles Didier Drew, who was said to be the first Confederate officer killed in a war, a Catholic priest named Abram J. Ryan, who was called a poet and priest of the Confederacy, and a monument memorializing the Confederate general Albert Pike, whom to us is more infamous as a Freemason than he was notable as a general. We would be surprised if these monuments make it through the next election, although Landrieu has evidently not yet threatened their removal. By Thursday, we had learned that some of our social media acquaintances were going to participate in a demonstration on Sunday, May 7th. Since we lived half the distance away that they were going to travel, we would have been ashamed if we ourselves did not make the effort. In this case, we is my wife, Melissa, and I. As I do not believe that she would ever be left behind, especially for something like this. But my own schedule cannot be easily abandoned, so not really being certain as to whether or not we could make the trip to New Orleans until almost noon on Saturday, May 6th, as soon as we learned that we could do our regular podcast from the road that evening, we hurriedly packed and headed west for New Orleans. Around that same time, hearing through the social media buzz that the Antifa was bussing in hundreds of people, if they can be called people, for counter-demonstrations. With the news we were receiving, and knowing the Antifa tendency towards violence, we along with many others were indeed expecting the Battle of New Orleans. But seeing many of those from our side who were traveling to attend the demonstrations, we were even more encouraged. And we set out, unprepared, but undaunted. One of those acquaintances is Michael Tubbs, the operation commander for a group which we are only recently becoming acquainted with, but with which we are quite impressed, which is the League of the South. Thanks to Michael, we knew where to go, where to park, and by what time we should be there, because the police were blocking everything off, and we never even had to ask. We only had to watch his Facebook feed. Our journey and arrival at the monument in Lee Circle could not have been smoother. Later we would realize that the hand of Yahweh our God must also have been with us. Knowing the history of the recent Antifa counter-demonstrations and how little prepared we really were to become engaged in one. 
The walk from the parking lot to Lee Circle was interesting enough. Along the streets were a scattering of people stationed in diverse places and just watching. Some of them were cops dressed in paramilitary clothing, and some of them were enemies. We were asked about our shirts, which advertise Christagenia.org. We were asked if we were with them, and if they were from the KKK, referring to the League of the South members who were already at the monument, their Confederate flags proudly waving in the morning breeze. We were courteous, brief, and ignorant in our replies. We introduced ourselves to Michael and to some of the others that we were vaguely acquainted with only from the Internet, and quite quickly, social media friends began to become real friends. The hours at midday were relaxed, in spite of the expected tension except that the New Orleans police temporarily removed us from the periphery of the monument in order to sweep the area, as there was a late-morning bomb scare. We spoke to as many of the gathering Southern patriots as we could, and there were many fine men and women present for the cause. The theme of most of our own conversations over the ensuing hours was, of course, Christian identity and the need to preserve Southern and white Christian heritage. We had some long conversations with some fine men and women, and we pray that we have an opportunity to see all of them again. There were layers of police barricades, both circling and dissecting the area around the monument and around Lee Circle. But the front of the monument, which faces St. Charles Avenue, was left with the barricades wide open for the entire day, and that led to the area where we were stationed. There may have been at least a hundred cops scattered around the area or watching from the rooftops, but for most of the early afternoon, only a couple of dozen were standing out visibly in the streets. Opposite this side of the monument, a crowd slowly began to gather in the intersection, the intersection of St. Charles and Lee Circle. A few local patriots joined the crowd of demonstrators inside. While in the street outside, by mid-afternoon, a couple of hundred spectators and antagonists had accumulated. Some of them were curious local residents who were not particularly sympathetic to our cause. Others were obvious degenerates and anti-racist types, and a portion of them were evidently Antifa observers or agitators. But for a city which has a Negro population which is just over 60%, there were startlingly few black faces in this crowd, perhaps no more than a few dozen out of a couple of hundred. The Take em Down NOLA crowd, an organization formed, to promote the removal of the monuments was practically invisible until they arrived along with the Antifa later in the afternoon. One of their organizers, this take em down NOLA, one of their organizers is a negress recently imported from San Diego named Angela Kinlaw who also involves herself with Black Lives Matter and whose political ideology is noticeably Marxist.
She openly supports economic racism for Negroes on her Facebook page. Of course, these activist Negroes are all racists, but they only scream racist at whites. Whites must only learn to accept the term because it is a necessary component of our survival. We should never be afraid to be called racists. We have now learned from Nathan Lawrence and that many of the other prominent take-em-down NOLA figures are also from out of state, including one whom he mentioned who is Quest Riggs, who published an article about the May 7th demonstrations the day after the event at the communist website Workers World. So that should tell us all about all we need to know about him. The Take em Down NOLA website is hosted in New York under private registration, as I mentioned with the conver- in the conversation with Nathan. You can't see who owns it. And their online petition has only 1,762 signatures as of the evening of May 13th. One, it gained a, a, a tally of one signature since I did the pre-recorded segment with Nathan this afternoon. It only has 1,762 signatures as of about 6 p.m. Eastern tonight, this evening, even though it has been online for over a year. And, of course, not all of those signatures are from New Orleans. Probably very few of them are. So it certainly seems that the demands to remove the Confederate monuments from New Orleans have not originated within the native population. It is not truly a grassroots movement, and it seems that they have not really attracted much local support. These are only out-of-state Negroes playing the role of communist dupes on the payrolls of the plutocrats who are slowly moving the entire country towards a globalist agenda. As Nathan explained, the Agenda 21 agenda. But on the other hand, if it were not for the League of the South and a few more general American patriot groups who came to join or to watch over the demonstration, it seems that there would would never have been a demonstration at all. As for local support, the hosts of the Battle of New Orleans radio program were there, Nathan and his partner, who goes by the rather apt pseudonym of Goyam. Then there were a handful of men wearing t-shirts with the letters PPOL stamped on the back, which upon inquiry we learned is the Preamble Patriots of Louisiana. While they are constitutionalists, they are nevertheless southern patriots who care for their culture and race. But the other groups supporting the monuments, or the demonstrators, as we would call them, all seem to be from out of state. Most of those other groups were not even true Southern nationalists, but were nonetheless helpful and appreciated, and they were certainly needed. Among these were the American Freedom Keepers, who seemed to be either the same group or at least closely affiliated with a group called American Warrior Revolution. While there were Southerners and white nationalists among them, they only professed to uphold the Bill of Rights, and they were there to, quote-unquote, help protect the demonstrators. 
and the right to freedom of expression. Another group calls themselves the Red Elephants, which seemed to be a sort of alt-right group, and they were there mostly to engage in dialogue and document the event on social media. Then there were people from the anti-communist action and other white nationalist and alt-right types that we could identify that we could not identify with any specific group. But I made a remark to one young man about the about how the bleach blonde hair of someone who he seemed to be affiliated with was sort of effeminate, and he just walked away from me. No loss there, since several of them also seem to dislike so-called racists and hate groups who were there to make a statement in defense of their southern heritage. Perhaps he was alt-light rather than alt-right. But in spite of this, most of these men were not effeminate at all, and they certainly seemed to be good men who only need to come to a greater realization of the meaning of our experience in the present age. In other words... They need to be red-pilled, because they may think they are, but they're not. There were also a handful of men who came independently, who were not affiliated with any group at all. Some were from elsewhere in Louisiana, but most were from out of state, and also heard about the event in social media. They were there to make a statement defending their southern heritage, and we pray they continue to be involved in the future, perhaps even with the League of the South. Quite disgracefully, in our opinion, the sons of Confederate veterans were entirely missing from the event. They were out at Jackson Crossroads for the day, play-acting as toy soldiers, instead of fighting the real battle at Lee Circle. It was even further aggravating that when I visited the Facebook page for the sons of Confederate veterans a few days after the event, that I saw a post from a Louisiana division commander, J.C. Hanna, showing a picture of himself sitting comfortably under a shade tree in Jackson Crossroads while talking on a cell phone, boasting that he was being interviewed by CNN regarding the removal of the monuments in New Orleans. This is a slap in the face to all the men and women who were making a stand at Lee Circle. And it makes the absence of the sons of Confederate veterans from the event even more disgraceful. Of course, CNN is fake news. And I will venture to say that for an interview on the monuments, which was obviously timed to coincide with this event, CNN found a faker. The sons of Confederate veterans are worthless. By noon, the number of demonstrators, or those who were there to help defend the demonstration, the freedom of speech defenders, probably reached about 100 to 120. And not many more, even if our estimate may be too low. Media reports now give the total number of people at Lee Circle from as low as 700 at NOLA.com to as high as 1,300, as Fox News reported. And the wide discrepancy is mostly in relation to how many Antifa demonstrators were there, not to the number of monument supporters.
but the Antifa did not appear until after 3 p.m. So there were several hours for discussion and anticipation among the monument supporters. The first interesting development of the day was the rather simultaneous appearance of a characters of a character who is already being called the bike cuck on YouTube and other social media and another who is being called the cuck knight which is surely a misnomer he's a Jew a Jew cannot properly be a cuck as the alt-right uses the term since he is not properly a part of the white relationship in the first place no matter how white a Jew may appear to be the Jew is a race-mixed bastard of a creature and is not white at all so I was standing on a walkway in front of the monument with a few of the League of the South members. When this clown wearing a metallic corselet and an American flag for a cape came up to us and announced that he was from Los Angeles, that he had a lot of supporters with him, and that he would join our cause if the group, referring to the League of the South, took down their racist KKK flags. Of course, the League of the South flies only their own banner, which is a plain black cross on a white field, along with the Confederate flag, properly known as the Stars and Bars. In the same breath, the intruder professed that the flags were offensive, because he was half-Jewish and had a biracial sum. I immediately dubbed him Captain Jumerica, but since the sobriquet Cuck Knight has already taken off in social media. That is what I will call him here. I was not there to try to run anything, and I certainly cannot speak for the League of the South. All of the groups there had their leaders and their missions and knew their own purpose, so I only assumed the role of the casual observer and supporter for the cause. But out of natural instinct, I was the first one to tell the, tu- to tell the Cuck Knight to get lost, and that Jews were not welcome. And then even my wife Melissa reacted by expressing the same convictions quite loudly. He repeated what I said and immediately responded by saying, Okay, I will. And off he stormed. Then he reappeared maybe five minutes later on the steps of the monument, attempting a dramatic entrance by jumping over some of the surrounding bushes to start trouble with the men on the steps. Word of him had spread by that time, and they would have nothing to do with him. But the sympathy of the police was certainly with him, because even though he was an aggressor, when he attempted to knock down some flags and charge the men who were holding their ground and telling him to leave, he ended up on his back on the sidewalk, and two real patriots ended up being arrested for disorderly conduct. While the charges were dismissed the following day, the police had a clear bias against the monument supporters. The other intruder, the one they call the bike cock, or bicycle cock, is a true cock, since he is at least apparently white. But I did not bother to try to interact with him. I suspected that they were both either paid shills or antifa antagonizers. At first I thought that they were working together as they showed up around the same time. The bike cuck also rather immediately came to the aid of the cuck knight as he lay on the ground after receiving a well-deserved sock in the jaw. 
But for the most part, the bike cuck was more discreet, sitting at the edge of the crowd on his bicycle and agitating for hours, claiming to be a conservative, yet showing open enmity towards racists. He later got into a few minor scuffles, but nothing that the police had apparently noticed. Now, after watching some of the conversations on social media, which I was not close enough to hear while I was there, I wish I had engaged more closely with both of these trolls. The bike cuck could have easily been exposed as an agitator, but the cuck knight spent some time on a sidewalk at the edge of the area, preaching the gospel of hybrid vigor to some of the monument supporters. Thankfully, they did not seem to have accepted his diatribe. This fallacious concept, promoted by Jews as a way to promote race mixing, can easily be refuted with just a few historical examples. Hybrid vigor is bullshit. Aside from the minor drama caused by the intruders, the afternoon was occupied with a mixture of conversation and speculation, concerning the anticipated arrival of the counter-demonstrators, the Antifa. Seeing the violent outbreak sparked by the Antifa at Berkeley last month, as well as the recent standoff in Pikeville, Kentucky, and the earlier troubles in New Orleans at the Davis and Beauregard monuments, many of the groups among the monument supporters expected violence and were prepared for it as well. They earnestly awaited the anticipated Battle of New Orleans. Different rumors were heard throughout the afternoon. And finally, perhaps sometime after 2 p.m., we learned that the bust-in Antifa demonstrators were going to assemble at Congo Square, which is an ironically appropriate place for them, and that they would walk the one and a half miles to Lee Circle, entering from Howard Avenue from where they would be herded into a barricaded area to our left. That last report was actually fairly accurate. The bike cuck was a relatively minor nuisance, but the actions of this cuck knight follow a familiar pattern which we typically see Jews perform on a larger scale or over a longer period of time. They make bold statements in words or in actions, making some sort of spectacle of themselves in order to attract a lot of attention. And then they leverage that attention to gain influence in a movement so that they could subvert it with the ultimate goal of leading it down the road to hell and keeping the world safe for jewelry. We refer to it as jumping in front of the parade. Jews like Nathaniel Kapner, Frank Collins, Mike Enoch, Milo Yiannopoulos, and dozens of so-called self-hating Jews have followed very similar patterns with varying levels of discretion. The cuck knight tried it again a little later in the afternoon, attempting another grand entrance and another anti-racist diatribe. But after a long talk with one of the League of the South leaders, and another disinvite, he was finally relegated to the sidelines. We stood nearby but could not hear what was said. 
As the conversation between Michael Tubbs and the Cuck Knight was coming to a close, the Antifa came into view as they turned the corner and swarmed down Howard Avenue. My first impression is that there must have been six or eight hundred of them. Media reports are even wider, estimating anywhere between four hundred and a thousand. So the media is not very accurate. They were not wearing their traditional masks, and there were reports that the police threatened to arrest anyone with a mask. This is probably one reason why they were not as violent as expected, as they are basically cowards, who will only engage when they think they can remain anonymous. But whether or not they were masked, as we could not yet tell, the men from the League of the South rushed to the barricades, waving their flags proudly, and began to taunt them even before they were within earshot. If there was no battle that day, it was not for a lack of enthusiasm on the part of the monument supporters. As the counter-demonstrators, or the Antifa, were herded into the area around the monument which faced Howard Avenue. I just stood at the barricades and watched, taking dozens of pictures of the filthiest, most degenerate crowd of people I may have ever seen in public. But photographs by themselves do not accurately capture the nature of these beasts. Granted, there were some people among them who were appropriately dressed and who did not appear to be degenerates. But most of them were sodomites, or women who appeared to be men, or even a few men who were obviously dressed as women, and they seemed to make up close to half the crowd. Then there were more than a few women who were dressed as cheap prostitutes, wrapped in fishnet, and with unshaven bodies and unwashed hair. If there was a fear of anything, It may have been a catching some disease if we had to come into physical contact with any of these beasts. The saddest part is that most of them were apparently white. They were mostly college-age youths wallowing in the slop of 12 to 16 years of Marxist indoctrination and exhibiting the fruits of their brainwashing. They had been turned against their own people and culture. The counter-demonstrators were holding pre-printed signs that read, Take them down NOLA, Black Lives Matter, Your Heritage is Hate, End White Supremacy, Fight Racism, Take down all symbols of white supremacy, Take down all monuments, and a hundred other homemade signs with various inane slogans or scribblings. A week ago, sitting here with Don Fox... I had surmised that perhaps the globalist plutocrats who fund these groups, such as George Soros, had kicked the Black Lives Matter movement to the curb in favor of the Antifa. Now I have realized that they are trying to incorporate it into the Antifa, something which seems to have been made possible with the common denominator of the recent anti-Trump protests. But even here... There were surprisingly few dark faces for a city with 60% Negroes, for a state with 
32 or 33 percent Negroes, we would estimate that only one in every six, or even less, but we'll give it one in every six, of these counter-demonstrators was a Negro or a Mestizo. Most of the Black Lives Matter t-shirts and signs were worn or carried by white people. There were apparently local residents in this group, and they may have mostly consisted of the Take Down Nola faction, but even among them, Negroes were scarce, and whites seemed to have been holding most of those signs. Were these really Antifa? I am fully persuaded that the largest portion of the group were indeed Antifa, in spite of the current denials of the liars at the Southern Poverty Law Center. The energized degenerates were there in sufficient numbers. The rhetoric was there. The posturing and the chants were there. Only the flags and the masks and the accompanying violence were missing. There were threats, but there was no real violence. These were not all local citizens. Not hardly. No matter how they tried to make it look. But interestingly... The group of counter-demonstrators also seemed to have been mostly female. We would estimate that 6 in 10 of the counter-protesters were women. If a battle had taken place, a lot of women would very likely have had to become intimately acquainted with the concrete. For the most part, I did not bother watching the time. The Antifa and whoever was with them may have reached Lee Circle around 3 p.m. or not long after. Once they arrived, there must have been two hours of screaming, chanting, posturing, and arguing. But from what I saw, not a single blow was thrown from either direction. The men from the League of the South, as well as many of the others, proudly stood at the barricades and taunted the adversary without fear even though they were outnumbered by at least 6 to 1, maybe even 10 to 1, maybe even more than that. For perhaps an hour, we anticipated that the barricades would come down at any time. We were waiting, we really thought they would, and that that we would have a battle on our hands. But I was confident that if that had happened, the counter-demonstrators would have easily been routed. But how appropriate it was that, in the end, the only one who really got hit all day was the Jew, the so-called cuck knight. That must be a statement in itself. It's actually funny. (laughs) So, in the end, we can only call the event the Brattle of New Orleans, because all we had ultimately confronted was noise. Around 5 p.m. or shortly thereafter, the Antifa simply disappeared in a stream back down Howard Avenue. Over the next 30 minutes or so, most of the monument supporters were also gone. So we left around 5.30, sunburned, very sunburned, and thoroughly dehydrated, desperate for a cold drink, and not knowing anything of our way around New Orleans. We just got into our Jeep and drove. So we ended up on Magazine Street, in a seemingly upscale white neighborhood. The street was spotted with bars 
and cafes. Young white couples were lounging at a Starbucks, white girls flitting up and down the street in sundresses, often accompanied by companions of darker hues. Men were sitting in the bars in their Birkenstocks and preppy polo shirts. All of them were completely oblivious to what we thought was a great cultural battle that had just taken place only a mile and a half away. None of them even seemed to know or care. They have already been thoroughly disconnected from their heritage and their past by the Marxist agenda promoted in the public school systems of America. For them, the brattle of New Orleans may only be a three-minute curiosity on the evening news or, more likely, a bleep in a Twitter feed. The communists have long understood that a nation... is more easily subjected if its sense of history could be removed. Karl Marx is often quoted as having said, take away the heritage of a people and they are easily persuaded, right into Agenda 21. In the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, in Protocol 16, the authors boast that classicism as also any form of the study of ancient history, in which there are more bad than good examples, we shall replace with the study of the program of the future, Agenda 21, we shall erase from the memory of men all facts of previous centuries which are undesirable to us, and leave only those which depict all the errors of the governments of the Goyim. In a 1958 book, which was written by a former FBI agent named W. Cleon Skewson, titled The Naked Communist, one of the stated goals of the Communist Party in America was to belittle all forms of American culture and discourage the teaching of American history on a ground that it was only a minor part of the big picture. This has long been done. And these upscale white kids down on Magazine Street in New Orleans are its victims. The schools artificially uplift every deplorable non-white culture while discrediting and demonizing actual white history and culture to the greatest possible extent. The Brattle of New Orleans was a victory for freedom of expression since the Antifa was powerless to achieve their usual goal of silencing opposition through violence. It was a victory for the League of the South because they stood up to their enemies fearlessly and with that we were quite impressed. Some of the other patriotic groups share in that victory as well. We hope to see much more of this in the future, and Magazine Street is a stark reminder of just how far we have to go before we can claim to have made any progress at all. Some of the other groups we mentioned here need to develop a better ideology, because pluralism is the Jewish experiment, and it is bound to fail. You cannot be a true patriot and embrace racial pluralism. As soon as you do, you have already been defeated by the enemies of 
all mankind, as Paul of Tarsus referred to the Jews. Something we always see which sickens us is when lukewarm southern nationalists fly the stars and bars after it has been defiled with the slogan, heritage, not hate. The Antifa counter-demonstrators care nothing for that, so they are now carrying signs which say, your heritage is hate. They care nothing for white history, white values, white culture, or white people. Conservatism without racism is nothing. Patriotism without racism is nothing. You cannot even be a patriot except with men with whom you have a common patriarch. Civic patriotism is a charade, a false concept which does not actually exist. The root word pater from which we get patriarch and patriotism. Pater is father in Latin, and true patriots stand together and defend what they have inherited from their common ancestors. There is never any chance of appeasing Negroes and Mestizos. As soon as you draw a line in the sand, you will be branded as a racist. If you move the line back to the threshold of your home or to your dinner table or to your daughter's bedroom door, it does not matter. You are still a racist. If you give the Negro everything except your own chastity, he will demand that as well. And as long as he cannot wear your white skin, you will still be a racist. The Negro will not be happy until he has everything that is yours, and he has you as well. So the Negro will not be happy until whites cease to exist. Fuzzy lines are no way to defend a culture or a people. If whites are to survive... The lines must be clear and unapologetic. There's no apology in the command for Christians to come out from among them and be separate. It is already well past the time to draw those lines. We pray that New Orleans has not seen its last battle. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.
Yeah, you black bastards. 